Before we turn back to uh, the psalm that we've read, Psalm 31, friends, please join me in praying to God and asking for his help. Let's pray. Oh Lord, how we bow to you, how we fall before you, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And we cry to you for help tonight, Lord God. We pray uh, that you would help us to leave fatigue uh, away from us, that you would keep distractions away from us this evening. And how we pray that we would know the still small voice of the Almighty God. And we pray, Lord God, knowing that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light for our path. So we pray this evening that you would grant illumination that we might walk well as Christians, that we might walk in your ways and in step with your Spirit, that you might use us to bring glory and honor to your name. Help us, Lord, with Psalm 31, that we might hear from you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, can I invite you to please turn back to to Psalm 31, uh, to have that in front of you either on your your phone or device or even a physical copy of the Bible, and to have that there in front of us. Now, it's a curious thing, I I think, but it's definitely the case that when it comes to holiday destinations, holiday destinations, there are some areas of the United Kingdom that are inexplicably ignored when it comes to holiday destinations. Some beautiful regions of our country are overlooked in favor of the more familiar spots. Isn't that right? We've all heard of the beauty of the Isle of Skye or or the beaches of Harris and so forth. But aren't there equally impressive areas, maybe even around us here in Dundee, that for any number of reasons, they do not get the attention, perhaps, that they deserve. Some areas of the country inexplicably overlooked. Well, if that is true of geography, then is it not also true when it comes to God's Word? Maybe you see what I mean. Do you? There are certain sections of this book certain sections of our Bible that we tend to pass over and we tend to ignore. We all in this room, from the youngest to the oldest, we know Psalm 23, don't we? We know Isaiah 53, we maybe know John chapter 3, but who amongst us really knows well the book of Zephaniah? Who knows well the intricacies of the book of Haggai? There might be one or two in the room who do, but for the most of us, perhaps not. You see the idea, don't you? It's true of geography. Maybe it's true of Scripture. There are sections of the Bible that are inexplicably ignored. Well, this evening, what I really want us to do for a very short time together is turn to a portion of God's Word that is criminally overlooked. And I say criminally for the following reason— that what we have in Psalm 31, what you've got in your fingertips this evening, is a psalm that could be described as a messianic psalm. Do you see? So a a psalm very similar to Psalm 22 that we studied not all that long ago, but a psalm that, yes, it points you to your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, but a psalm that actually sheds light on the ordeal 
of Golgotha, the inner ordeal of Golgotha, a psalm, if you look at verse 5, a psalm that our Lord even quotes and quotes from the cross as he passes over from life into death, a messianic psalm. So we're going to consider tonight Psalm 31. There is the plan. Before we get our teeth into this, just a word about the uh, structure of the psalm. Here, let me just turn over to you. As this was read out this evening, Psalm 31, what did you make of the psalm yourself in the public reading of Scripture? What was your first thoughts about the psalm, Psalm 31? The reason that I ask you that is that a number of commentators and scholars, they would say about Psalm 31 that what you have in your hands there is a bit of a mess. I don't know how many times I've read that recently, that Psalm 31, you'll hear the line that it's a bit of a hodgepodge. So you'll have uh, a phrase of praise, and then there'll be a phrase of trust, and then there'll be a phrase of panic, and so forth. A lot of people will see that it's all over the shop, <laughs> all over the place. I, I don't agree. See, if you look closely at what you have in front of you, I think you will recognize a clear division. So if you see it, if you have it in your hands, if you look from verse 1 to 18, there you have a section of prayer. The psalmist is praying. So from verse 1 to 18, then things kind of change a little bit. And then from verse 19 to the end, you have a second section, and it's a section of praise. Everybody's with me there. So you've got a section of prayer, 1 to 18. That's the large proportion, and then a section of praise. Now, tell you what, let's zero in on that first section of prayer. What we've got there is what technical turn. Let's go for it. Why not? What we have there is what you know as a chiasm. Have we heard of that before, a chiasm? Let's explain it. So if you can imagine a section of scripture in front of me here. So a chiasm is where you work from the outer edges in the way in a series of pairs. Does everyone follow? The boys and girls follow that? You've got it, do you? So you've got a section of scripture, the outer edges, there's a pair. And you move in, and it's a pair, and we keep doing into the set. Let me show you, if you have a look. So you have the pleading in verse 1 to 5. That's the beginning of the prayer. And do you notice it matches the end of the prayer in verses 15 to 18? There's a pair, it's pleading with God. Then let's work in the way you have trust in verses 6 to 8. And it's got a pair in verse 14. There's trust as well. And we work in the way. Do you see what is left? What is left is this central section of lament. Do you see the point I'm making? It's the most elementary point ever. The point is quite simply, this is not hodgepodge. <laughs> this is not a mess. This is a very, very carefully constructed psalm. And it's a psalm that moves from turmoil and pain and ultimately to joy and delight and praising of God. Okay, now, will we get our teeth into this psalm? Will we look to the psalm? Let's do that. First of all, let's notice opposition experienced, opposition experienced. 
Okay, now we have dealt there with one issue, one problem when we are looking at psalms. Very often the structure of a psalm can be rather complicated and difficult. But there is another obstacle we sometimes face. So very often the original setting of a psalm is quite difficult to pinpoint. It is, isn't it? Let's say last week you were at home and in your morning devotions, you read, what we go for? Second Kings. What would happen there? So you would sit with your coffee in the morning, you would open Second Kings, and you would read in the 22nd year of the king, Azariah, and the reign, such and such happened. You're able to pinpoint a historical moment. Well, what happens this week if you go from here and in your morning devotions you read a psalm? You very often know, you know what happens, don't you? You're sitting there with your coffee, you open the book of Psalms, and all you see is an outburst. Do you see it? There's no historical reference. All you'll read is, out of the depths I call to you, and you're scratching your head first thing in the morning, aren't you? You're scratching your head thinking, what depths? And who is even speaking at this point? Do you see, sometimes the original setting of a psalm, really difficult for us to get our heads around. Well, you're ready for the bad news. Bad news, I'm supposed to be preacher of the good news. Here's the, the, the bad news. The bad news is, of course, that we don't know the original setting of Psalm 31. Yes, if you look at the title, you'll see it's a psalm of David. And yes, it's evident through the psalm that David is facing a crisis that involves death. He is facing death here. But beyond that, we can't really speculate. But that said, we can make this assertion, and this is important, please hear it, that Psalm 31 centers around a threat from enemies. Did everyone pick up on the language? The young ones picked up on it, I'm sure. Did you notice words like enemies, persecutors, adversaries, aggressors? They litter this psalm. So what do we want to know? What do we want to know when we're wrestling with the psalm? If there's enemies and they're doing something to the psalmist, we want to know, don't we? What sort of opposition is the psalmist facing? That's the question we ask here. Well, to answer that, I would ask you to note a couple of things in the text. So have it open. Make sure you see this. First, these enemies are scheming against David. Have a look with me at verse 13, friends. Do you see it? Can you find it there? David cries out. Do you notice this is halfway through 13? They conspire against me. Look at, read on, look, they're plotting to take my life. It's the same, actually, if you look down at verse 20. By this stage, David's looking back on that experience. But look what he's saying, that God has hidden them from the intrigues, or it could be translated, God has is, is, is hidden me from the plots of men. Do you see it? What are the enemies doing, friends? And I tell you, they're rubbing their hands. That's it, these enemies of the psalmist. They're conspiring. They are scheming to see how can we, how can we kill this man? That's one side of it. There's a second side of it, though, because these enemies are also falsely accusing this man. Look at verse 18. Look how stark it is. Look at the beginning of that verse. 
Do you see it? Let lion lips be mute. Let these lion lips be silent. Or verse 20, you've got the same sort of idea. He's crying, protect me from accusations. Do you, do you see the picture? We're asking of the psalm, what sort of opposition is this man facing? And he's facing conspiring and deceit and scheming and, and lies. Now let's just pause for a second. Let's apply it to ourselves. I wonder what you're thinking of the psalm here at this moment. Are you thinking, this seems a little bit far off. I'm not experiencing this presently in my life, scheming lies and so on. Well, friends, you have an enemy if you're a Christian. And what is his name? Our enemy is Satan, the accuser. How do we know him? He is the father of lies. And if you're following the Lord Jesus Christ this evening, you should expect this in your life. As you seek to live for the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ, you should expect to be conspired against and lied about. But in your Christian experience, where do you go when this happens? Like, what do you do? Well, surely you see how good God has been to you, even in Psalm 31. Do you not recognize what you're holding in your hands? God has given you, by his grace, he has given you a prayer to pray when you are beset by evil men. Here in Psalm 31, God is so good to us. He has given you a song that you can sing in your distress. And that's marvelous, isn't it? What mercy, what mercy of God. But there is another place, a better place that you can turn when you're opposed. You know it, don't you? As a Christian, you can always turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can always turn to the great high priest. And you can see why, can't you? Friends, is it not true that these very tactics that we're reading of, that these were the two tactics that the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ used against him? Was your Savior and Lord, was he not conspired against? Was he not lied about? And yet... How twisted we are. I mean, what do we normally do with that, with the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ? And we think about people scheming against him. What do we do? We make it up by ourselves. We apply it so readily to the church and we talk about total depravity. But don't you see how precious this is in Psalm 31? Here you are given a, a little insight into what that opposition felt like for Jesus. In the psalm, a little window, a little insight into what Jesus experienced as he was beset by evil men. And doesn't it stir you? Doesn't it move you to consider that? I mean, we know, don't we, that scene in the Gospels? You know it. The scene from Caiaphas, the high priest's courtyard. Did you remember the scene? And Jesus is in that courtyard and he is under arrest. What a scene that is. And the Sanhedrin are meeting all around. And we wonder, how did the Lord feel at that moment under duress, under arrest? What was he going through? And then you come to this psalm and you read verse 13 and you read, I hear the slander of many, terror on every side as they conspire against me, as they plot to take my life. Or, or what about after that interview with Pontius Pilate, where the 
sinless, matchless, perfect, righteous son of God is accused of inciting insurrection and rebellion. And you wonder, Lord, how did that make you feel? What was that like for you? And we go back to verse 18 and let lying lips be silent. Let them be mute. Friends, doesn't it move you? And, And doesn't it move you all the more when you remember why the Lord endured that? We think of these enemies against our Savior, and we remember it was for us. All of it, Christian friend, all of it, all of that opposition for you. Jesus endured that all that you might never know the accusations of Satan on the day when judgment comes. We see opposition experienced. A second thing here we see is Shame endured. Shame endured. Let's have a a little experiment, shall we, just to to prove a a point. When I say to you the word shame, what is it that springs to mind? How would we uh, define shame? I think to us in the modern world, uh, very often when we think about the idea of shame, what we think about is an emotion Isn't that right? We think about shame and we think very often about an inner sense of remorse, don't we? An an emotion. I think it's very important when we come to this psalm to realize that in Scripture, that very often shame is not so much an emotion, but shame is the idea of public ridicule. Do you see the idea? I suppose it's the idea of being put to shame. So shame very often in the Bible, the idea of being put to public disgrace. Now, I I am sure that you all picked up on the fact that shame is one of the major themes of the psalm. Did you pick up on that? So you have shame at the very beginning, you have it in the middle, you have it at the end of the psalm. Okay, so do you see what is happening here? So the psalmist, not only, oh, not only has he been lied about, Not only are people rubbing their hands and scheming and conspiring against them, but what else is happening here? This man is in the midst of some sort of heartbreaking public humiliation. Some sort of public humiliation. Now, we ask, well, what is that? This public shaming, this public disgrace. Well, again, ask in the first point, just a couple of things to notice. Can I ask you to look at verse 11? And it's as well, keeping your finger in verse 11. Because notice that this is the disdain of those who are close to him, those close by. Look at verse 11. Do you see the psalmist speaks of being the utter contempt of whom? Of those close by, of his neighbors. It's public humiliation, and it's involving the need. Look, then, a second element. It is disdain that leads to abandonment. Because carry on in verse 11. Oh, isn't it something? Do you see it? Not only do you have the central figure's friends. Look at the language. The friends run away from him, don't they? They're away. They've, They've gone. They've scarpered. Not only do you have that, but look at verse 22. Look at 22. The psalmist is looking back on his experience And he says he felt cut off from God's sight. Does everyone follow? 
We've got the abandonment, not only from his friends, but we've got the abandonment of his very God. Now, (laughs) what we could do here, I think, is, is linger on how privileged we are, certainly in normal times. Don't you think, what an amazing thing it is. What an amazing and beautiful thing to be able to sing, sing songs like that in praise to God. Do you not agree how we are longing to do that, aren't we? We're longing, and we're longing not just to sing. We're longing not even just to sing songs of praise, although that's true. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Don't we long to sing songs like this, songs that get to the root of human experience and human pain and to have those and put them in a Godward direction to praise God using words like this. We long for that. We could linger on that. But instead, again, you know where we must look. We must look to our Lord. And when you ponder shame, are you not reminded of what our Savior went through for his people? I'm sure it is not just me. I'm sure it's true of all of mankind that there is something absolutely petrifying about the idea of public ridicule. Isn't that the case? That is not just me. I think from the youngest children in school, the idea of public humiliation, public ridicule, from the youngest child to the oldest of us in here, there is something absolutely terrifying about being put to public disgrace and public shame. And yet, Christian friend, you consider what Jesus Christ endured and experienced to save you, to win you. Think of it, the Lord Jesus Christ was forcibly stripped naked and hung up on display. Our Lord endured the most intense public ridicule and public shame. And he was mocked. He was spat upon. He was, he was laughed at by a, a crowd of people. Laughed at, mocked by countless passers-by going in and out of Jerusalem. And mocked and spat upon by the religious establishment. Mocked and laughed at by Roman guards. Yet, is it not true that these two particular elements that we have just noticed in this psalm are abundantly and obviously true in relation to Jesus Christ. Can you remember what they are? Did our Lord not experience disdain from those close by? I mean, you think about the thieves on either side of him. As our, our Lord today is worshipped in antiphonal song in heaven. Isn't he the angels back and forth? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. What was it like at Golgotha? Voices from either side of our Lord back and forth abusing Jesus Christ. These thieves on either side of him. Disdain from his neighbors from those close by. But what was the other side of it? Disdain that led to abandonment. We remember it, don't we? Oh, how in humiliation we need our friends. How we need our loved ones to support us and to be near us. And what happened to our Lord for us 
they departed. They left. They ran. And that is awful. We shake with terror at the thought of that, but it gets worse. Because what do we know? There at Golgotha, our Lord knew even the very desertion of his father. It is unimaginable to us, and will be, Christian friend, ever unimaginable to ponder the depths of the shame. But there's one beautiful detail. Look with me at verse 17. Look at this. Because here the psalmist, look at the words of verse 17. Do do you see them? Let me not be put to shame. He's crying out in the distress of this ridicule. But what does he want? Do you see the second part of verse 17? He cries out, let the wicked be put to shame. Do you see? David wants vengeance, doesn't he? He wants God to turn the tables. Now, I don't want public humiliation. Let these enemies be shamed. And when you consider that, do you not marvel your savior. Do you not marvel at the Lord Jesus Christ? Because instead of that calling out for vengeance, what does Jesus Christ declare? What does he pray in the midst of his humiliation? Right there at the apex of it all, he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Friends, what a savior we have that he would endure public disgrace and all with such amazing grace. So we see opposition experienced. We see shame endured. And then we close tonight with trust that's evidenced. Trust that's evidenced. Okay, now we know, don't we? I'm sure everybody knows that one way of you and I determining the meaning of a portion of Scripture. When we're at home and we're reading the Bible ourselves, one way of really getting to grips with it is if we pay attention to repetition. We know that, don't we? If we're sitting with the Bible and we see terms, phrases, ideas repeated, our our antennae should prick up and we should pay attention to that. That helps us to understand the meaning of a text. Well, there is an idea Indeed, it's a thread that runs all of the way through Psalm 31. And I want you to identify it if you haven't already. So would you look with me to the beginning of this psalm? Look at the words of verse 1 and 2 and see if we can identify what the theme might be. Do you see? We have words like, God as refuge. What would that conjure up? Or God as rock. Do you see that? God as fortress. Or look at verse 5. Look at this. The psalmist cries up, I I give you everything into your hands. I commit my spirit. What's the theme? The theme that we have running all the way through here is the theme of trust in God. Trust in God. Now, as with previous points, let me just mention two aspects of that. First, you have to appreciate that this is trust in action. Because going back to the structure, what did I say the bulk of the psalm was? It is a prayer. Do you see how important that is? The face with enemies, face with opposition. This psalmist here is not just displaying some sort of vague, half-hearted hope or faith in God. Not a chance. It is a hope. It is a faith 
that leads to action. So friends, what is it this psalmist does here? Can I tell you what he does? He does what you, Christian friend, must do in a time of crisis. This psalmist calls out to God. He cries out to God. He exercises the faith that he has in God. He prays upon God's character and he prays through every detail of his present trauma. He prays. It is trust, but it is trust in action. But then we end this evening with the second element of it. Because this is also trust that is vindicated. (laughs) You see, there is in this psalm, there is, in a sense, with reverence, the strangest of moments, something strange occurs, an abrupt change, an about face, and I want you to recognize it. So please look at verse 18. So verse 18, if you recall, this is the end of the prayer. So up until this point, the psalmist has been crying out in the face of death. Death is there, crying out in the face of death. But then all of a sudden, do you see how it changes from verse 19? The psalmist from verse 19 seems to be looking back, and he's now praising God. It is as as, as though that at the end of verse 18, something's happened. At the end of verse 18, something seems to have occurred. Now, all of the scholars and all, you know, the commentators, they're all speculating what happened to David at the end of verse 18, right? Did God miraculously intervene here? What happened? Did he receive a word? And the truth is, nobody knows. Except for this detail from verse 19, that some sort of public vindication was enjoyed by David. Do you, do you see that in verse 19? He's vindicated. He's praising God being delivered and it's all in the sight of men. So we, we, we ask of David and we don't have an answer of David. But this evening as we come to the table, you see, we must consider. We must consider this in relation to Jesus Christ. And I wonder if you do that tonight, can you see how remarkable this is? Because, friends, it's true, we all know that in his passion and pain, the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated trust in his Father, didn't he? Trust going to Jerusalem, knowing what awaited him there. Trust in that trial, trust in the torture. Verse 5, even at the cross, crying out, into your hands I commit my spirit. But I'm asking you as a congregation, what was the event? What was it that took the Lord Jesus Christ from praying in the face of death to later a point where he can praise God for deliverance and vindication. What was the event? Surely it was the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that just as this psalmist delights in his public divine exoneration, so surely we are pointed here to the inner joy and delight that Jesus Christ must have known as he too was publicly vindicated, vindicated publicly in being raised to life again. And I think, quite honestly, tonight, that should be in the forefront of your thinking as you come to the table of the Lord. You know what we're like, especially in our tradition. 
So often we treat communion as though it were a funeral, don't we? So often, yes, we come with solemnity. Yes, we come appropriately. Yes, we remember Jesus' death. But so often we do that as though Jesus were still dead. We remember his death as though Jesus Christ were long gone. But friends, if you come at the table tonight, you remember his death, but you do so in light of his subsequent resurrection. Don't you see what you will be able to do tonight? You will be able to come to the table in the presence of Jesus and you will be able to thank him for all that he has endured for you, Christian friend. Come, remember, in light of his resurrection, you will be able to remember, to thank him for all the the pain, the opposition that he has endured, the shame. You can remember and thank the living Christ this evening. Friends, it's such a shame in a way that Psalm 31 isn't more widely known. Here we learn something of the inner ordeal of Golgotha, but maybe, just maybe, we get a peek into the inner joy that Christ Jesus knew in being raised to everlasting life again. May it be that tonight, just like the psalmist, may it be that your trust, friend, is in this God a God of such goodness that he has provided salvation at the greatest of cost, a salvation to all who will look to his son in repentance and faith. May it be that you are trusting tonight in this God. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Oh Lord, the mighty one, the holy one of Israel, we bow to you and we do so in praise and worship. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this psalm. Lord God, we thank you so much for how it speaks to our experience of the times that we face opposition, the times that we face the attacks and the lies and the accusations and the schemes of men. But Lord, how much more tonight we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for all that our Savior endured to bear our sin in his body on that tree, to see us forgiven, to win our salvation. How we praise you for the gospel. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.